everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in chronological order. I am so excited to welcome my friend Daryl Lawrence back and to have my friend Michael Anderson on the show for the first time. I'm also thrilled to welcome the incredible writer, editor, creator, uh, Marcus McLaurin here with us today. Marcus, what an honor to have you here. Let me have each- I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns if you like, uh, where we might know you from. And our intro question today, based on uh, our our content a little later in the show, we have a, a character who brings dolls to life. Have you ever played with dolls or action figures? If so, what are your favorites? Uh, let's begin with Marcus. I, I mean, I played with action figures as a kid. Um, I more liked to collect dolls that I found at thrift shops because I just like thrift shops and and there's like a ton of them and um the one thing I saw I was I was in um I was in oh where is it uh Provincetown in uh Massachusetts and uh there was a house that we'd walk by uh, after we parked our car and it would have this entire the front yard of this house was entirely made of just dolls and little scenes and 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 uh mosaics around them with chairs and it was it was pretty amazing but um i didn't really you know play with dolls all that much but i i sort of appreciate i don't know why i appreciate looking at them i think collecting them is kind of fun i don't really collect them but you like uh, you like like old ones from the 60s with their eyes falling out yes yes <laughs> especially the spooky ones yeah the ones where like the eyes are half closed and won't open unless you open it yourself <laughs> marcus where would our listeners know you from most I was an editor at Marvel for 10 years. I edited uh, titles like a lot of epic titles like Alien Legion. I edited and uh, worked with Alex Ross on Marvels and Kurt Busiek. Um, I did a painted line. I, I worked with Clyde Barker on the Razor line of comics, the, the comics that Clyde Barker created for uh, Marvel. Uh, and I wrote Cage, for uh, the, which is the third series with Luke Cage Power Man. Uh, and it, I wrote the entire run, which was uh, 13 or 14 issues. I believe it was 20, I think. Uh, I'm sorry. It was two years. I knew it ended at the end of a year. So and uh, I, I was I was very happy that I was, I, yeah, I was going to say sorry? 1992 to 94, I believe. Yes. And it was, it was um, you know, it's it's a challenge as a writer. I knew I, I, lo I love writing. I love, I love drawing. I came into comics first as an artist, but there's no, no way that I could draw um, on a regular monthly schedule. That's why I had an appreciation for artists who could. Um, but I, I did draw one issue of uh, one backup story uh, in Justice, uh, which was a new universe title. Um, and I was inked by Jim Lee, which I was really happy about. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate, I was really happy to write Cage. I had to actually try to get my feet in the water and tried to write, uh, put, a, put in a proposal first for Alpha Flight. And Fabian Nicieza got that. And then after that, I put in a uh, proposal for Cage and I got that and I was really psyched about it. And I really liked writing that character. I can't wait to hear more. It, it's a huge honor to meet you. I've been reading your books for many years. Uh, let's uh, let's give Michael a chance to introduce himself. Hi, Michael. Whoa, hello. How are you, Chad? So good. Welcome to the show, my friend. Good. Thank you. Uh, what are your name? What's your name, your gender pronouns? Where do people know you from? And uh, what dolls did you play with growing up? Oh, in what order to answer the question? So I'll start with me. Uh, my name, like you said, is uh, Michael Anderson. I go by Mike. I'm super casual while being type A at the same time. How does one do that? Uh, I, my pronouns are he, him. 
let's see. Where would you know me from? Well, I um look, you can see this, but the audience can't. I am one of the admin in a group on Facebook called Age of Dazzler because I am a Dazzler gigantic crazy fan. So that's where you may know me from on Instagram and Facebook especially. Um in the real life, what I do, um, I'm a, I love movies, I love pop culture, um, comic books, cartoons. I got into Marvel Comics with Uncanny X-Men 211 Massacre. If that tells you anything about my personality, <laughs> there we go. And uh, what else? Um, in the real world, I'm a vocational rehabilitation consultant. So I've got my hat in the counseling world. And what else do I do? I do a little cosplay as Dazzler and Longshot. I'm going to branch out this year at Dragon Con and do a little G.I. Joe. So we're going to go that route. Which does lead me to your question. I transitioned right into it. Um, I played with... So my hard line, um, a doll has brushable hair, which I would not play with as a child. So... I, a lot of G.I. Joe, Transformers, Thundercats, Mask, Bionic 6, which no one seems to remember. A lot of cartoons like that. And I had all the female characters, but they were not dolls because you cannot brush their hard plastic hair. And there we go. <laughs> uh, Michael and I may or may not be planning some Dazzler content for the show, but I'll save that announcement for a little bit <laughs> yeah! later in the summer. Uh, and then uh, lastly, I am so happy to welcome my friend Daryl, one of my favorite co-hosts back. Hi, Daryl. Hey, uh, everyone. I'm Daryl. I My pronouns are he, him. Um, you may know me from the X Factor Files podcast, where we recently started our new season, and it kind of segues into an answer for your question. So... Um, I had a great group of Wizard of Oz dolls growing up, and they did have brushable hair um, because it was <laughs> the late 80s heyday where it was the 50th anniversary. So there's a ton of merch. Um, but then I did eventually get a Barbie. It was a Ken. Um, and this Ken was a Baywatch Ken. So he came with a wave runner. <laughs> so um just to slightly tease, I know we'll get to it at the end of the episode, but we do have a Barbie episode of our podcast coming up the week the Barbie movie comes out, just a couple weeks after the release of this episode. And we'll be <gasps> chatting about um, the Marvel Barbie comics. With Barbie superfan Isabel Dieppa, who we love on this show. <laughs> yes, Isabel! You guys should uh, talk to Hildy Mitnick, too, who was the editor of Barbie, I remember. Excellent. Uh, excellent. Uh, and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I also use he, him pronouns. I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian, and an author. I uh, I was just telling uh, my friends as we started, I just finished what was supposed to be a three-hour drive, but turned into a five-hour drive because of road construction. So if I seem a little frazzled today, listeners, please be forgiving. I, uh, I'm recovering. Uh, I did play with dolls as a kid. My mom was very into nurturing toys. I think when I was five, I got a Cabbage Patch doll. I have a little sister who is also gay she played with barbies and i played with he-men growing up and yes we have laughed about how that could have been role reversal she always wanted her barbies to play like in the same world as my he-man and i'm like no they're like 50 feet tall compared to he-man like it doesn't work like the size doesn't work uh so we, we we laugh about that quite often of course i eventually ended up in comic books i collected ninja turtle action figures for years as well so ashley martin's powers we'll get to her later in the show is to turn her toys to life which is basically every kid's dream right it's like toy story but done in a, in a mutant power 
Uh, so we're going to start today by getting to know Marcus a little bit. Uh, Marcus, I got to reread Marvels and your entire cage run in preparation for today. It was so fun to take me back into the early 90s. And I realized once again how bold and powerful that series is for the time that it was produced in. It has been 30 years since its production, which is insane to realize. Uh, I would yeah. love if we could to start a little bit with just your origin story. Where do you come from and how did you end up working at Marvel Comics? Well, I got, I went to, um, I always loved comics. I went to school at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. When I was at Pratt, uh, there was not a comic book. And so I and a group of my friends started a comic uh, group that we called the Comic Illustrators Guild. Uh, and we produced a, uh, a once a semester comic called Static Fish. And I was happy to find out in like two years ago, it still exists. So we put out a comic and um, we handed it off when we graduated and other people took it up and so on and so on. So Static Fish, I believe, still in, still exists at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I was, I was pretty happy about it. And uh, then after, after Pratt, I got into Marvel. Um, and that was through the work of a really good teacher who uh, who basically i wanted to work at marvel she, she says like what do you want to do after you get out i was like well obviously i've been planning to be an illustrator i'm going to graduate and then try to be a freelance illustrator but what would you love to do i'd love to do comics i'd love to work at marvel and she was like well we can get you in at marvel we can get you an internship there but you'd have to be a student i'm like well i'm graduating there's not a way i can be a, uh, uh say i'm i'm coming in as a uh as an internship and she helped me by saying that I was still a student and got me in as an internship. I was in Mark Greenwald's office, which was the perfect place to come in. I was working on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe with Mark Greenwald and uh, and his assistant was originally Howard Mackey. And Howard then graduated to an editorship and he uh, took on Gregory Wright. So I worked with him uh, and uh, David Wall, who was uh, one of the people that worked there and, and Mark Siri. Uh, and we all would do research, just just hang out all day and learn from Mark Grunewald and learn all the things about comics that I never knew. I just read them. Mark lived them. Um, and he was an amazing mentor, uh, an amazing person. He was the, the heart and soul of Marvel. And uh, so I worked there and then I became and went from there. And I after that, my, that quote unquote internship was up. Um, it became up because I decided I wanted to get a job there. I went in as the editorial assistant for Epic Comics. So at that point, I was working under Steve Busolato and Archie Goodwin, Dan Chichester, and Margaret. Um, I can't remember her last name, but she was one of the co-creators of Shadowline. Uh, and just all this stuff that, that was all around me and just working with Archie was also incredibly amazing and i moved from there into an assistant editorship i was the assistant editor for carl potts uh and then graduated to an editorship uh and what and at marvel i had a thing where you were an editor then a managing editor and then a, a sorry an assistant editor then a managing editor then a full editor in every other industry it's the exact other way um but then i so i graduated my own editorship and got my own assistant and started editing my own comics and again working under carl who became head of epic comics at that time and i started i was lucky enough to work on a ton of creator-owned comics including now, like the i i was just able to look it up it's margaret clark uh was it uh, do you want to do you want to quickly summarize what epic comics is for listeners who may not be familiar yeah epic comics when i was 
reading comics at, at Pratt, um, Epic Comics was a line that was like heavy metal. It was Marvel's answer to heavy metal. It was creator-owned work <laughs> that would, um, you know, was was spectacular stuff. It was a huge uh, market for for new artists who wanted to tell different types of stories. Uh, and Epic graduated into its own line of comics, which was Marvel's creator-owned comics line. And so people could come in and the idea was that it could be published by Marvel, it could get Marvel's distribution, but the characters and the, and the comics themselves would be owned by the by the creators. And it worked for a while, and then it didn't. Uh, and but luckily, independent comics are still, you know, thriving and took off after that. Yeah, Mar Marvel has a long history of kind of side. There was what Star Comics and Marvel Knights, and there's all these different ventures over the years. Epic was uh, was one that you'll see if you go through the the dollar bins at your comic book store. You'll see a lot of stuff in there from that era yeah. of comics. Now, uh, Marcus, there was a lot of uh, a creative influx in Marvel in the early 90s. I know there was a lot yeah. of turnover at the company pretty constantly, but my view as a fan, and again, 1992 is a very different time. We're like in the early MTV era. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot of... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot. There's a Marvel MTV segment you can see where MTV was at, at the Marvel offices walking through the bullpen and talking to people. And I'm, oh, I'm there hovering around the background somewhere. There seemed to be during this time a push toward diversity. Some more female creators, some people of color, some LGBTQ folks coming in. Yeah. What was it like to work at Marvel during this time? It was, I mean, it was, uh, I say this often, it was the best job I ever had uh, because of the creativity, because of the openness, because of the fact that the strength of the ideas is what led the, the product. It wasn't that we had to, fulfill any specific marketing niche or need we just said is this a really good idea let's let's do it you know and and that created um a, a, a an atmosphere of just real real raw creativity you have character people who could do characters or do stories that were really different i mean i experimented with some weird stories and you're probably going to want to talk about it later but uh some stories that i'm not that proud of um where we were just we we're being really edgy we we're just doing something that was really daring and we're like let's see if we can do it let's see how far we can push the envelope well now i want um, to hear about your weird stories <laughs> oh it was it's it's in the second tra cage trade paperback which was a crossover between cage silver sable and um terror inc with uh with priapus the carnal serpent yeah yep <laughs> Yeah. I'm showing you all right now. I'm holding it up. Ta-da! Yeah, and that's, Ta it was, it was, I mean, it was a great attempt at a crossover, and I just I sort of let it fly. But it was like there was a lot of subtle sexual undertones um, that were not so subtle. We have interviewed Gregory Wright, who talked about uh, Silver Silver Sable orgasming on panel, and the editor's not catching it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why because I was working with Dan Chichester and Greg Wright, and they were just like, "Oh, let's see if we can do this." I'm like, "Okay." Um, it was it was fun because I like the characters and I like the creators and they let people just, you know, do creative stories, do do interesting stories without worrying about how much I mean, there, there's, there were sacred cows at Marvel. There were there were things that you could say, you know, this character can't be Captain America because Captain America always wins. He always finds a way to win. It's like, well, you know, what if there was a way that he didn't win? What if there was a way that somebody, you know, what if there was a way that we could figure out creatively that he could he could be beaten? It's like, well, you have to be really creative and convince me that that's a, a way that would work. And um, there was never a way that we could convince Ralph that that could happen. Yeah, Ralph, no, Mark, speaking of which, oh, sorry about that, Mark. Tell us about 
since you're talking about creative endeavors, tell us about the launch of Marvels. Um, Marvels was a really cool that Marvels came out of Clive Barker's Hellraiser because mm. people would send their work to Clive and Clive would send their work to me saying, Hey, let's get this artist on Hellraiser's on Hellraiser story. Uh, and I got samples from Clive of Alex Ross's work. And he was like, let's, let's do a horror story with this guy. He paints beautifully. And I was looking at the samples and the samples were all superheroes, realistically painted superheroes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that'd be great. Let's give him a story, but then let's talk about this stuff because I think this would be an awesome comic. And so I talked to, uh, to Alex and he had been friends with Kurt Busiek. And so, uh, I talked, I said, let's, well, I want to do a comic with you. Uh, let's tell me what your ideas are, what you'd like to propose. Like, well, I'm not really an idea guy. Let's let me work with Kurt. And Kurt came up with the whole, uh, concept of Marvel's. And, you know, the, the, the Marvel universe seen from an every man's perspective and the realism that Alex brought to that was, uh, the amazing, you know, flavor of it. But the, uh, original perspective was you know, equally important to the, the strength of the series. It was originally proposed, I believe as a six issue limited series, but at the time people looked at it and said, this is great. It's going to be, you know, prestige format, which was like the, 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 the thicker format, 48 pages. Um, and they said, but if, but it's never going to last six issues. Like we're going to sell a lot in the first issue, half of that, the second issue, you know, a third of that, the second, mm -hmm. the third issue, sure. and it's going to be dying by the fourth issue, but let's, let's live with it with four, for four issues. We, we did it and people would see the work that would come into the office and they'd be as impressed as I was in seeing Alex's original samples. And they said that, you know, but it was still for at that point, you've, it's been advertised, it's been sold, it's been booked. People started getting interest in it, started becoming very excited about it. And by the time the first issue printed, um, people, it, it sold out. The first issue went into a second printing and the second issue, the sales went up. Wow. And the third issue, That's the sales of. went up. I know it yeah. was. Yeah. It, they, so they were, work, they were wishing at that part that it was a, at that point that it was a six issue limited series. Um, mm -hmm. But we did it in four. And I think I thought I think that was actually that forced um, a lot tighter storytelling um, mm -hmm. chose a, a different Kurt chose a different specific period, a specific era uh, with a different feel to it for each one of the of the issues, um, telling it through the, the perspective of Phil, the uh, reporter who saw the Marvel Universe firsthand. And gave a perspective of the Marvel Universe that that same perspective was one that he brought then to um, his series after that. Uh, Astro City. Uh, Astro City. Yeah. And that was, that was, you know, that was really the same perspective, really looking at the characters um, as P as not, not, no, you don't know in the Fantastic Four, you were following the Fantastic Four because there was, there was, there were amazing characters and you wanted to know who they were. But in Marvels, you didn't know who they were. You could maybe get a hint of who they were. You got more of an opinion of who Spider-Man was from J. Jonah Jameson than from mm -hmm. knowing who he was. And, you know, occasionally looking up and seeing him swinging overhead in New York City. And, Marvels, um, Marvels is an absolute hit. If you have not read it, please read it. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's, it's the universe in one place as experienced from the eyes of a civilian who's interacting with these giants. There's, uh, there's superhero activities and in the, in the newspapers, they work so hard to keep it chronologically sound. It's a beautiful series. One of my favorite reads ever, if I'm honest. Um, the funny thing about it was I didn't have to check with a lot of editors. Like, can we use this character? We just said, we're using this character from this comic and we're telling a different part of the story. We don't have to get permission because it's printed. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Marcus, I like to share my path to people a little bit. We got to interview Gregory Wright on the show earlier this year. He's become a very dear friend of mine now. Uh, and we talked about yeah, Silver Sable. Uh, Silver Sable ex uh, focused a female protagonist with a diverse cast, including uh, people of color and LGBT people. It's a bold series. You do not expect it in the early 90s. And when yeah. I was rereading that, I went back and reread a significant portion of Cage and was realizing maybe for the first time what a bold, incredible series it was from the early 90s as well. I was 14 when this series is coming out. So reading it as a 44-year-old father was a very different experience. This was the year after the Rodney King beating. This is the, the middle of the AIDS crisis. And to see a creative team of color largely putting together this powerful story about this superhero who's one of Marvel's very few featured Black heroes, but who has a very controversial past, uh, having been in prison, having been uh, framed. Uh, and then he had, of course, this long run with Iron Fist. Uh, that yeah. ended badly. He's back in prison, and now he's back in kind of a new series. Now, you mentioned a moment ago, this was one of your pitches. Can we talk a little bit about how this book came together? It's a, it's a pretty strong read, although it's very firmly set in the 90s. That was when I was rereading. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is definitely 92. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, um, the, the series itself, the thing I loved, because I read Harman Iron Fist, and I loved that comic, and I loved the buddy aspect of it. Harman Iron Fist was amazing. And uh, they were they were looking to release to to put out a new cage comic and at that time john byrne also put out iron fist and from my perspective i was like how can you have iron fist come back and not have him you know just immediately go and find luke cage his best friend but john, but john byrne sort of stayed away from that he didn't feel like that was the most important part of the of that character so when i was bringing back cage i was dealing with the fact that cage was had been on the run because he was accused of killing iron fist so when iron fist came back suddenly he's not being hunted anymore because he's not dead uh so but cage took a lot out of that it's like that's that was my best friend that was that was a person i love more than life and he came back and didn't even look me up and didn't really do a lot to to help me in my situation which was isolating um and so cage you know, we got a chance to start telling some of his backstory, which was really isolating. It was a, a story of somebody who always wanted to do the right thing and 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 has a, an altruistic vein running right through him, but has been taught to learn how to look out for himself. He has to look out for himself. Even though he wants to help other people, he has to know that that just looking out for other people is not going to get you anywhere. And that was, you know, so he had an anger in him um, that I felt because that would be that that would be my anger for someone that that loved deeply and cared about people and just sort of kept getting slapped down, just kept getting um, just had to keep picking himself back up. And um, the more that that I got into that, the more it was I was able to see the characters hero for hire. Uh, perspective the fact that he was doing it for the money was a a mask because he didn't take any he didn't just take any job for money he took jobs he believed in but he always got paid and so and that the 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 fact that he needed to get paid for those jobs was a shield for him from getting emotionally involved in the things that he wanted to do that he wanted to help people that he wanted to care for but he was doing it because it was his job not because he cared and 
you know, that's a, which is, which is not true. He did it because he cared, but he has to put that shield in front of him. And, and no matter how much he kept putting that shield in front of him, he sort of kept showing his true nature through the stories and the types of stories he would take. Um, and in getting that, uh, you know, that was the, my, the first story was I titled The Drowning Man. Um, and that was about someone who has been drowning all his life and, you know, needed to reach out for any, any sort of buoy or anything to try and save him. But at the same time, you know, was just trying to stay alive. You know, even if he felt like he was doing better, he was just trying to stay alive. And I, I played around with that. That was I was introducing a lot of themes about men and sons and fathers. And uh, you know, his it, we introduced his backstory of uh, the fact that his that um, the reason he never had a family was because his family believed he was dead, and he he uh, they didn't believe he was dead. They his father rejected him because his mother died while he was in prison, and so he never got to go to her funeral. Uh, he his brother took his father away and didn't tell him where he was going. So they moved out of out of uh, Harlem and he couldn't find them anywhere when he went back to Harlem and just basically was unmoored, had no family. And part of that, I was playing around with the uh, uh, with Mickey, who was a positive force in his life, but was a friend, was just was someone who was a father figure to him until he actually reconnected with his father and his father you know, had a lot of anger at him because his father privately blamed him for the death of the mother because he went to jail for a crime he didn't commit. And his father was a cop. His father was an ex-cop whose son went to prison. And there's a lot of shame in that. Um, and so it was about them learning how to reconnect. Um, the, the brother who was the one who sort of formed the wedge in between the, the, the father and Luke Cage uh, when he passed, it brought it brought Cage and his father back together. And at the time, Cage had also taken in a young uh, kid who was living on the street, Troop, who was, uh, you know, in, in a way, you know, Cage was trying to be a father figure to Troop. And so it was about a lot about generational fathers and sons. The character um, Leonard, the character Leonard Lucas, or his his father, uh, has gone yeah. on to be featured a little bit by Al Ewing in the Mighty Avengers flashbacks. I don't know if you're aware of this. And then... No. Uh, Cage is now married to Jessica Jones, and they have a daughter, uh, Danielle. That I know. There's yeah. also an issue. I believe this one's written by Brian Michael Bendis, where Cage has to go look for his dad because he's changed his name and wants nothing to do with him. So this character's been used a little bit more in the future, uh, which is really interesting. Cage is also the mayor of New York City now. In the comics, if you didn't know, it's kind of <laughs> fabulous. He's had quite the journey. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm telling my perspective in the in the '90s where I was trying to go and just themes I wanted to explore because there was a lot of a lot of fatherless children um, that I've experienced that I've that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, you know, even though I was trying to write, I was trying to write a specific black perspective, uh, and I often got comments in the letters page like, "Why is this Irish guy writing comics about black people?" I'm like, "He's black." <laughs> you know, it's not my name's McLaurin, not, but that doesn't mean I'm not black. Um, so it was it was you know i was trying to do a lot of stuff i leave it up to people to read the comic and see how much of that goes through because in, in as well as telling those types of stories you know i was always amazed by scott labdell at the time who was writing x-men who could write entire issues where nothing happened you know because me as a, as a new writer i was like i gotta have a fight scene i gotta have an enemy i gotta have something that he overcomes every issue and we couldn't just have entire se sequences where people are just talking about 
what's going on emotionally with them. But I was trying to pull those emotional cues in. Yeah, um, Chad, I'm really glad that you brought up Silver Sable. I love Silver Sable. Um, I have two of the splash pages from the final two issues right behind me um, from Gordon Purcell, who did work on one of your issues as well. Um, and similar to that, um, you had a whole organization of racists. It wasn't just one racist character as it was in Silver Sable. It was a whole organization with Hammer um, that even had frowny suits. Um, can you talk about incorporating that theme? Because um, even now, I think that it speaks to me when I was reading through your issues that there was a group of white supremacists involved yeah. and uh, the main character of this comic confronting that. So talk to me about your work around that and why it was important for it to be reflected in the Cage comic. Um, because the hard part about modern, in my opinion, all this is my opinion. None of this is specific fact. But in my opinion, the hard part about white, white supremacy is the way that they can make that they can make a point and make it seem like it's so clear that that you should be feeling that way, that everybody should be feeling this way. Um, and it's and it's how so adaptable if you are white, the same way as it's adaptable if you are black, that you should feel this way, instead of understanding that there are different people with different perspectives. Um, though they were the bad guys, the, they were the bad guys. And in that sequence, they needed to be powerful bad guys. They need to be um, powerful bad guys that could take down a lot. And so Cage had to overcome it. But there was also a sense of the person that they were trying to take down, the 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 rapper that they were trying to take down to make a symbol um, was also, you know, he was prejudiced on, on a different level. And he was, um, he had he had his own kind of hate. I think that there was something I folded into hate in the title of that comic. Um, uh, and, and that was, it was, that was what the story was about. Just, just how hate can fuel, uh, different, the, different, the title is, uh, the title is creative hate, creative hate. Yeah. Which was about hate, creating more hate, um, drawing hate to itself, uh, drawing like minds to themselves and making points that they feel uh, are completely valid until you really look at them and you realize this is just about about fear of of the unknown of the other uh, and you know if you if you avoid othering somebody and you can see them as another human being how you can actually connect with them um, but it was about the othering was you know a, a, a huge thing because it's about putting somebody on the outside and understanding as uh, someone as someone who is on the outside can you understand how somebody else feels how another group feels um and can you can you because they're making stuff out of that hate and that hate you know that the rapper was using creative hate in his music um and it was identifiable it was uh, uh, uh it was it was connective it connected to people they felt what he was saying uh, but at the end the same time it was hate and you know you want to bring people together now, for our X-Men fans, this is the most X-Men-centric story in the Cage run. Issue number two, you see some white supremacists called Hammer who get uh, some of the armored suits from the right, the Cameron Hodge group from X-Factor. They have the big yeah. giant smiley faces. 
And they literally, instead of turning their frown upside down, they turn the smiles upside down <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, go on to commit some crimes. There's a lot of really incredible uh, uh, themes explored in your book. There's a lot of great 90s characters. Dakota North is here as a, as a primary character. You create some fun new villains that are quite evil, like hardcore or quite hilarious, like kickback. It was really fun to go reread some of this. My uh, and, and then of course uh, Luke's brother becomes uh, the villain Coldfire. You have a the character Boogeyman from uh, Power Pack. There's a lot of really fun uh, fun yeah. themes explored here. My very favorite thing is uh, in issue number eight, and I uh, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a moment, Marcus, as I read some of your own words back to you. <laughs> there's a right. there's a couple of snippets in issue eight where Luke Cage uh, Dakota North is looking for his father, and she finds a file of. Uh, uh, letters that Cage wrote to his dad while he was in prison. And I'm going to read just two of these really quickly. Uh, there's four of them. It's a really beautiful uh, co commentary on this character and this theme of fathers and sons as you're talking about. Uh, in the second letter, Cage writes, this place is worse than anything you ever tried to scare me about. Seagate, they call it Little Alcatraz here, is about as ugly a maximum security lockup as they got. And the worst part of it is, is feeling so alone. Please pop just one call, one postcard, anything. If you can't forgive me, at least tell me that. You're my father and I love you. I'm not sure how much longer I can hold out, fight even to stay alive. If I feel like all I got waiting for me is your anger, your mistrust, then I ain't going to. And then a little bit later, uh, dear pop, I don't, and this is when he believes his dad is dead because his brother has lied to him. Dear pop, I don't know why I'm writing this knowing you'll never read it. When James told me you died yesterday, I had to write one last letter. He said, you're at rest now. And he said it was my fault. All my life, that's been true. But the people I care about most are always getting hurt. First, what happened to Ma? A month ago, Riva dying in that car accident. Now you. I keep wondering how much I'm supposed to take before I go crazy or just die inside. I keep wondering why. I swear, Pop, I never meant to hurt you. The loneliness of this man in jail, serving time for a crime he didn't commit, uh, and then going on to be an experiment, uh, uh, you know, by, by a white scientist in prison. Uh, there's well, yeah, I mean, you got you you to understand that, that I was trying to give some backstory because it really seems like a stupid thing for someone's like, oh, I'm in crime for a crime I didn't commit. You know what I'll do? I'll go and, and submit myself to an, uh, an experiment that might kill me. Like, you got to understand, like, there's a low point where he's like, I have nothing. I have literally nothing left to lose. And if this is my only chance of getting out, then I'm going to get out. I'm going to take that chance. And you have to get beaten down to a point where that becomes reasonable. And that's that his father's part of that part of that key part of that story. It's a it's a really beautiful story and, and just such a great journey for this character. Uh, Daryl and Michael, do you have other questions for Marcus? I just wanted to say that I am so struck by how strong the themes are in this comic. So full disclosure, I had not read this. Um, the first time I had ever seen Luke Cage in anything, and you all are going to laugh at me, was an issue, uh, several issues of Dazzler when she hired <laughs> them as bodyguards because Rogue was stalking her. Um, very obsessed with her. So that was my, you know, that was my introduction, of course, the TV show and everything. So going back and reading these, um, I was struck, of course, by the 90s style and the really gritty themes. And of course, the themes of racism. And Mark, what you just brought up about the hate and then that the more hate and the hate and the hate and the hate is how I conceptualize this. We're not getting to the love. We're not getting to the acceptance. And this is such a strong theme that's increasing now. 
you know, yeah. in the last several years, not to be political, but it has all become political. As we know, you couldn't just agree to disagree and you can't have a different opinion almost. And it becomes fighting terms like, no, this is a fact. Although, as you stated earlier, no, that's that's my belief. So that's an opinion. However, people are taking these as facts. And I feel like the themes in this when I was reading, especially getting to issue two, we're just so strong. I'm like, this is now. This is where we are at right now. So I just wanted to point that out and, and thank you for being so insightful and knowing, unfortunately, where things have gone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, thank you very much for that. Of course. I, mean, oh, I was, uh, was going to say quickly, I'm picturing all the letters columns that say things. <laughs> that say things like, why can't you make him say sweet Christmas more often? <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are certain things. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to, I, I again, being t coming up under the tutelage of Mark Greenwald, I was very strongly believed that there was, there had to be a story reason for things. Um, and you have to establish that, okay, this is what he said. Somebody wrote that. I don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. So he's distancing himself from who he was specifically and on purpose. So he doesn't say that anymore because he isn't that person anymore. Um, he changed his outfit because of that. He changed a lot of stuff because of that. Not just because it was an awful outfit, <laughs> um, or a very seventies outfit. And he was a nineties guy. So he had, a, he had an awful nineties outfit. Uh, and just trying to find ways to, to make things fit, the, to make story reasons, to make character reasons, to change the character, to change, to drive the story um, was very important. So, but thank you. Okay. I, it was a lot. It was the thing of it is, and I, I can't huh, sound like Tom DeFalco because um, he used to say that a lot. <laughs> uh, the thing of it is that I could not have done that if I didn't have Kelly Corvisi, who was the editor of the book, who just allowed gave a lot more leeway gave great feedback um the editors i don't know how the editors work at marvel these days but i know the editors at that time in addition to you know making sure the comics came out in time making sure that there was a, a filling story in the drawer that 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 could could you know could carry the book uh, and making sure that there was a good artist and there was a good story and there was you know that everything carried over they gave you a lot of leeway and i remember there's a famous quote that someone said about louise simonson who was a great editor um before she was a great writer uh that a great editor will be able to find a great writer and and make their stories better without them even knowing that they were working on that 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 um that if you had a bad story it's because you had a bad editor, not because it was a bad writer, you know? And so really the strength of the, of the Marvel Comics line was the strength of the editors in being able to help the writers to tell the stories that they wanted to tell and helping them to shape the stories and giving them the leeway to be able to do that. Um, you know, behind that, I think, came generations of writers who were like, this is exactly what I want to tell the story and you don't touch a word of it. It was instead a, an area of a great trust between the writers and the, the artists and the editors because they were all part of the same team and they could make something greater than any of them could make on their own. And so Kelly was a really key part of that. Uh, so I got to give him the, give him a shout out. And I just have a minor question about the handbook stuff and what you started off with, um, because I love the handbooks. Um, uh, yeah, so do I. Th there's a lot of work that goes into them. What's something that is memorable from your time working on the handbooks? Is there a specific profile that you had to dig into or um, something like that while you're working with Mark on that gigantic ongoing project? Well, first thing I would, I would say is that the Jarvis entry 
and the Dakota North entry were two characters I got to draw. So I was thrilled about that. So if you go to those, you'll you'll be able to see he's in. I think yeah, they're they're both in the in the in the trade paperbacks. Um, but Mark's take was to to Mark was all about a cohesive universe. These all were stories that took place in the same universe, and um, that's hard to do. It's so hard to do that at DC, every time they try to do it, keeps starting over, kept starting over at the time. And then when Marvel started to start over, you know, that was a, a that was a hard blow when we said, OK, we're going to make a pocket universe and have people able to start over uh, whole new types of stories. Mark was Mark and Mark, the encyclopedia, the, the uh, OHM uh, official history of the Marvel Universe deluxe edition. That was Mark's brain. And he. Uh, broke things down to simplify it so that we could make them more cohesive he had i think uh, a b c d e five different body types of males and females that were that were you know generalized so that people would have the poses and have the proportions the same so that when he drew when they drew them they would be proportional to each other uh although you know galactus couldn't be proportional to ant-man uh but they they had the body types so that they would have um, a similar look, even though they were drawn by different artists over time. Uh, Peter Sanderson, who uh, is, you know, if Mark's brain was a continuity, Peter's uh, brain was the history and um, the, how the history fit together. And the two I, of them I together, just recorded an episode with Peter. I got the the honor of meeting him just very recently. Yeah, Peter's Peter's amazing because he could. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of all of those characters. And that was that was amazing to see. Um, and Mark also had a great sense of the art. He would give specific characters to specific uh, pencilers or, or ink, uh, the inkers was the same. It was Joe Rubenstein who inked most of that book. Uh, but it was different pencilers all from all over and all different eras who would draw the book, um, draw the characters. And uh, my time there was with i mean with dave and mark we would uh basically go down and try to find we would read the copy that peter had created then go down to the archives where they had huge shelves of rolled up paper that were every comic that marvel ever, had ever produced and we'd find those we'd get those statted we'd take a couple of panels and we'd put them in and and sort of design the page together uh using old panels that were re referenced in the content that was alongside it and then um yeah it was really fun because that led to my you know when i was able to go down into those archives i was able to read some old comics and this was um fairly early on and one of the characters that i loved um i loved the old western books and i found a western story i started reading it with the sixth issue uh which was of a black character and a white character who were there were side. It was a buddy buddy story, and they would go around the West and and just have these adventures because they're both wanted, and that was really fun and interesting to read until I went back to the first issue, because I loved these characters, and then I went back to the first issue and saw the backstory and found out that the white character was a a slave owner, the son of a slave owner, and the black character was a slave, and they both went off to fight for the Confederacy and that that killed a lot of it for me but that was you know it was like that that made me think okay there's a lot of stuff here that um that gets written in an era that does not understand what is what is being written and what is being convinced and what is being sold uh, and 
you know, with Mark Grunewald's voice in my ear, how do you make this make sense? Um, how do you change this around? How do you look at something and say, this is what you believe this character was, but here's what it really was, because this way makes a lot more sense. And that happened a lot at Marvel, where, you, you know, the, the, the big reveal idea, the idea that you know something and then suddenly that thing that you knew is not true and something else is true. So um, I have a lot of great, great memories of working on the, the Marvel Universe book, um, working with really great artists. When I worked there and they made them into trade paperbacks, I, I, my inner fanboy came out and I have the entire series of trade paperbacks. And I would go and have uh, uh, different artists when they came into the office. I was like, can you sign this character? Can you sign this character? So I have like, you know, a bunch of creators that signed the pages of the characters they created, like a giant Marvel yearbook. And that's down in my office. And, you know, I don't know that that's that it has any value aside from my loving it and never wanting to let, you know, wanting them buried with me. Absolutely. That's amazing. Uh, my last question, and then we'll move to our issue review. Uh, Marcus, why did you leave Marvel? I was actually part of the second big downsizing. Um, I would never have willingly left Marvel because, again, it was the best job in the world. It was a great place to work. It was entirely creative. But it was sold to Ron Perlman and the whole new, uh, not new universe, uh, new cinema. Um where where basically it was purchased as a way of building a media empire the media empire i think that marvel has become but the person who purchased it did not have an idea of how to do that and as a result he said you know this year we're going to put out this many comics next year we're going to put out twice that many the year after that we're going to put out twice that many and what happened was the market was flooded not only with too many stories but with too many bad ideas and the bad ideas uh, were sold as good ideas. People would buy them, store owners would buy them, be stuck with huge amounts of inventory of bad comics and bad stories and bad ideas. And that killed a lot of shop owners and that imploded the market. And as a result, they said, oh, you know what? We have too many comics now. We need to get rid of some of the editors. We need to get cut this down. We need to downsize. And they downsized twice. I was there for the first downsizing and I survived the first downsizing. And it was really hard to be at Marvel after that first downsizing. Um, but I felt like we could, you know, we could pick it back up after that. And with the second downsizing, I was gone. And and there was a, I remember walking into the office and because people knew what was happening. They knew people were getting called in one by one and they would have an HR representative there and they would say to them. And I remember Bob, Bob Harris was there because he was the editor in chief at that point. And he was, he looked broken. He looked, because he had been telling people all morning, we're going to have to let you go. We're going to have to let you go. We're going to have to let you go. And I felt horrible for him because it was just a really hard thing to have to do that I knew he didn't want to do. That was not his choice, but was his responsibility at that point. Yeah. Uh, and so, in, in, you know, I, I shook his hand and said, it's okay. I appreciate it. Um, I'll go on to new things. Uh, and that was, that was my exit from Marvel. And I know at that point, there was, I think there was so many really amazing editors that, that, that left at that point. And so many great comics that never got to sort of come out. There was a whole second wave of Razorline books from Clive Barker 
that had been done up until I think the fifth issue in the drawer. And they were really good books. Hyperkind was a book about a, a black character and a white character. And they were in opposite, they were in gangs. And they got, they fought each other and they got sucked up into some kind of alien vortex that put them together in the same bodies. And so that they, they had, they were mixed up with alien parts and white hands and black hands so that they were no longer themselves. And they had to figure out how to live like that because they were tied to each other. It was like the, um, what's that? The defiant ones in a comic kind of idea. And, you know, where they had to learn, they had to learn about each other. And that was a really good concept. It was a really good book that was written by Sarah Byam. And I, I was just like, you know, I, when I left, I was, I was showing people, this is everything that's here. This is everything that's here. You know, these are all these issues. Here's, I'm handing it off to everybody. Not like, oh, I'm fired now, so I'm out of here. Forget you guys. Bye. Um, I really cared about those books. And then when they never came out, that was, that was really the heartbreak because there were good books. And, um, you know, that was the, that was the saddest part. We've been focusing on Marvel in the early 2000s, and this sounds like it was the same era So with the hidden years, which is a good transition point for us. But we have had the chance to talk to Gregory Wright and Jason Liebig and other people who worked, uh, both of whom worked on this book that we're about to uh, delve into today. I don't know if for all three of you, and I'll ask this question in a moment, if you were familiar with X-Men The Hidden Years, this is an era of the books where they're trying really hard to hype up the stuff from the early 60s or mid or late 60s. It's set as an interim book before uh, Giant Size X-Men number one. Uh, the payoff for what we're about to say, because it's this is not my favorite pair of issues, <laughs> if I'm honest, but it's still fun to cover. The payoff here is you get to see a Sentinel on the cover. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of Sentinel recap stuff here. There's also a couple of new mutant characters that we meet. The thing I got to talk about very quickly, and then I think it's okay to still be open about it. For many years prior to movies in America and around the world, there were things like vaudeville and traveling circuses to keep people in large cities entertained. And in many, and this is wildly remembered in much of the public, in many of these areas, they wanted to kind of titillate or freak out people who would pay admission into what they called a freak show, where they could enter and look at people who were differently abled, uh, who had different physical and or mental handicaps, uh, and sometimes who were just people that were... Mm, what well, not sometimes they were being exploited for profit now there are some happy stories from these times in that there were people who felt home and community in these shows they felt like they had an opportunity to live but they were being called and the term that is used in this comic here uh based on this is freaks and this is something that is widely remembered there are famous movies about quote unquote freaks there's american horror story uh like a whole season that's featured around this concept People with hands that look different, women with beards. Uh, you got the the fat lady and the guy who looks like he has lobster claws, or the alligator man, or the the Siamese twins, or the the little people. And this is something that went on and on. Now we do see a group of quote unquote freaks, and I am going to use that word as we talk about these characters in today's episode because that's what they call it in the comics. But I do want to restore, just begin with as we're starting the sensitivity around this type of topic. Because even uh, this this book is from 22 years ago, but it's uh, it's uncomfortable when you see this used. But this happens all over the Marvel Universe. The, uh, the character Blob, for example, comes from this circus mentality. Uh, and we'll see Blob in this issue uh, today as well. 
so let me let me turn that over to the panel for just a second. Do you have any concept or any thoughts on the portrayal of the characters, the freaks in these issues? I, I thought I, I I just I reread these before coming here, and you know, to my from my perspective, there was there's a power in that word that uh, is unifying for them while at the same time derogatory for someone else to use for them which is which has a parallel with the n-word in modern times um it's 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 words that you that you can draw a strength from when you use it but you understand the power of the words and if someone else uses it against you it's those are fighting words you yeah know, to, to a lesser to a lesser extent queer which is more modernly acceptable but faggot in the queer community is is very much this way as well yeah yeah so it's like something that you can you 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 can use the word to take away its power if you're within the community but if you're outside the community you can't use it because then it's derogatory and and offensive what this brought to mind to me was kind of like a pre-morlocks marvel situation where you know you have your um your folks who have banded together because they feel like and they have been treated like outcasts of society and they find a sense of community that way community that way um and i also feel like it's very relevant when you kind of go years later but really back um for the morlocks where it's a very similar situation where you have your mutants that are they can blend in you know that look are still handsome and beautiful and they look like you're more regular humans and then you have your morlocks who they don't feel like they do and they don't and they're treated as such and i also and i feel like that um has to do with the lgbt community because we can all feel that way sometimes like oh yeah dude you seem so straight or whatever and it's like <laughs> Come on, man. You know what I mean? Um, we're like, oh, I didn't know you were gay. And I'm like, well, I'm a person. Like, that's part of me. And I feel like that always resonated with me with X-Men, of course, as you know, most of us X fans. And in this especially, that all brought this back for me. So I don't know if that was the intent, writing these issues and bringing in that kind of a storyline into it, but that brought me back to it. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get into this right away, but this this group of, I'm, I'm deciding if I'm comfortable using the word freaks to describe these yeah. characters. I think I'm going to just say uh, this this Kruger's followers. That's how I'm going to refer to them in this episode. Sure. Uh, these these yeah. people have found community uh, led by this man, Kruger, and uh, because he's evil, the, the X-Men are just very happy to punch them. And <laughs> so there's not good. There's a lot of problems with it, but we are going to go ahead and review this today. I'm going to cover some of this content quickly. We are going to cover X-Men, The Hidden Years, numbers 10 and 11. Uh, the publication dates are September and October of 2001. Once, a, once again, as a reminder, we do recognize on this show that there is a lot of problematic content around John Byrne. We have talked about it on the show a little bit already, so we're just going to appreciate him as a talent as we're doing this review today. Uh, we have, again, been able to uh, interview Jason Liebig and Gregory Wright, who both worked on this book as well. But it's uh, John Byrne on doing uh, writing and penciling and lettering with uh, the incredible Tom Palmer on inks. Uh, jumping in as a quick recap, this is uh, two issues where there's about eight separate stories going on. Some of them get one panel or even one page of advancement, while the other characters are kind of split into different areas. There's a lot happening here, and you have hopefully been following along with our previous uh, <laughs> our issue reviews as we go. 
Uh, the cover of issue number 10 has Professor X and Beast protecting a young girl named Ashley Martin. This is a young mutant character who is 10 years old. She is a white girl who lives in Dunphy, Illinois, the hometown of the Beast. And her power is to bring dolls to life. She has inadvertently taken control of a sentinel, which we saw in the previous issue, and they now seem to be protecting her from that sentinel. Uh, this is a split cover. On the bottom half, we have Cyclops and Marvel Girl fighting the uh, the the followers of uh, Mr. Kruger. Uh, the way that the one guy is gripping Jean Grey's leg in this uh, image is very disturbing if you go and look at this cover. As a quick recap, <laughs> I'll keep this quick, but there's a lot going on. Magneto has been defeated by the X-Men in the Savage Land uh, in a super complicated set of stories, but all you need to know is he's lost at sea and they think he's dead. Professor X is acting very weird after he got gamma, gamma irradiated after the fight with the Xenox, but they just teamed up with the Fantastic Four to repel the Xenox, and Jean Grey in our last issue review with Erica Schultz, we saw her meet the Phoenix Force for the first time, although she does not remember it. Uh, Bobby Drake is hanging out in his underwear in the Savage Land in a weird little Nazi cabin with Carl Lycos, and Bobby has amnesia. We also have Havoc and Polaris flying around on this fucking ship in the Savage Land for about eight issues with Kazar. They have nothing to do except sit in this ship for, like, ever. Uh, and then lastly, Angel and the character Avia, who is a mute, mutant bird lady from a tribe in the Savage Land, have been captured by a fishing trawler who sold them to another new mutant we'll meet today named Stefan Kruger, who looks like Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show and who has the power to cancel the mutant powers of others, but also manipulate their energy. Uh, there's a very quick recap for a lot that's happening. <laughs> we'll get into it today. Uh, I'm going to cover the first part of uh, issue number 10 quickly and then let's uh, take a few minutes to talk about it on page one we meet amphibious uh one of my favorite savage land mutate characters who finds magneto in the water and carries him back to shore then we move over to muir island where moira mctaggart appears here very briefly uh she is looking over Jean gray and gathering data and again at the time we knew moira to be a very nice ally of the x-men who was human now in the current comics we know Based on modern continuity, she had a much darker agenda. So who knows what she was doing with this energy. But we do get her called in this issue out on keeping secrets along with Charles Xavier. And I do want to read this uh, very quickly. Uh, Moira says, and I apologize for my terrible accent uh, <laughs> in advance. She says, I can't help thinking there's more to your experience out in space. Is there really nothing you recall of it? And Jean says, only a terrible sense of being, out of control, as if as if someone or something that had never experienced human emotion was suddenly experiencing all of them through me. Starting with the worst. Perhaps that's as much as we'll ever know. Perhaps there was nothing to know. But I'm not a telepath like Charles. In fact, my interest in mutation has nothing to do with it having any powers of my own. So again, she's lying here now that we know. Jean says, but I'm a telepath, at least since the professor triggered the power in me. And I can see in your mind what it is you want to ask me. Yes, Moira, I am deeply troubled. I have been since our plane came out over the horizon and I saw Muir Island for the first time. Another of Charles Xavier's little secrets, like telling Scott and Hank that he was taking me to Boston to see some specialists. But like that, a necessary deception, Gene. There are many evil mutants who would seek to exploit what we are learning here. And some who are not mutants, our old partner Carl Lycos, for instance. Yes, the non-mutant variant who calls himself Sauron. We X-Men know only too well what he's capable of. He's dead now, but there has been so many secrets lately, Moira. Secrets Professor X has shared with me, but not with the others. I wonder if there are many more he hasn't shared with even me. Oh, my word. <laughs> and then a minute later, Jean confronts Xavier directly. I'm going to read this also very briefly. 
And she's asking him if he has secrets. And he says, I cannot answer that without knowing what you already know, Jean. Ugh, so manipulative. And I cannot learn what you already know without possibly revealing things you have no immediate need to know. Has anyone ever dated a man like this? Like, are you cheating? And well, I don't know what you think you know already. And I can't answer that unless I know what you know first. Well, how do you even respond to that? It doesn't make any sense at all. And it comes back to you to respond. What? It's gross. Why? And then Jean says, then the answer is yes, isn't it? Why, Professor? <laughs> Charles, why don't you trust your own students? And he says, it's not a matter of trust, Jean. As a telepath, you can shield your mind against most probes, and so it is safe to me to share some of my plans with you. Again, gas lady. And she says, but not the others, because none of them have mental powers? I can almost understand, Charles. You've taken a tremendous burden upon yourself. You've set yourself as a bulwark against the forces of evil and mutant kind, but I'm not sure I feel comfortable with these deceptions. I'm not sure I can continue to lie to my friends but when they get back she immediately lies uh i would love to hear your thoughts on this scene this was the most interesting in the whole two issues for me the moira charles gene confronting them about their lies section what are your thoughts here so first i can't stop laughing hearing it read aloud when i read it <laughs> i just kept having question marks when i read it in my own brain and i think i should read these out loud from now on i think that gives <laughs> new depth and new meaning to these words because these are characters that are saying these things aloud to each other and when you hear how ridiculous some of these things are like wow someone said that i'll just say that what what hits me with all of this is just how manipulative and you know moira and charles he's not even right here you know for a couple of pages but she just lies all the time to everybody and it's very convenient the answers he gives and same with moira but like well this is why you can have this information and why they can't and because of this and it's just like all these chess pieces moving all the time with yeah. charles and moira and these poor well are they adults quite yet yeah they're, they're 18 adults. now <laughs> okay so they're like pseudo adults but they just go with it because that's their father figure okay that makes sense okay gene's like i could never be like that and as you said chad immediately lies to her friends and peers so it's just ridiculous and i laugh because what else can you do <laughs> you're taught what you learn you learn what you're taught you know it's like yeah. that's her father figure is teaching her that lying is okay in a lot of instances and so you should lie until you find a reason not to tell a lie as opposed to the other way around uh, so yeah, the the lies from the professor is just a running theme for this guy. I recently read an issue of Thor by Donny Cates just a few days ago where he's sitting with his mother, Freya, and she's like, there are so many secrets, Thor, over the years that I was not able to tell you from your father because it would have broken you. And there are so many more secrets yet to come because this is like a running theme in Thor, right? Like every other issue, oh no, my father's secret enchantment that he never told me about is now coming to life and I have to stop him. And that's very much the, like Professor X is the Odin of the X-Men, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. Uh, okay, we move to Dunphy, Illinois, where Ashley Martin is hiding something in the barn. Uh, this this is where Hank goes with Charles, and they visit his mom at the farm for a few minutes. We do we do love Edna McCoy. Uh, then they go to investigate Ashley in a little while. 
Meanwhile, because we have 80,000 scene changes in this comic book, uh, Scott and Jean are looking for Angel on Cerebro because he's been missing for a minute. But the signal is faint. And we learn later that that's because Kruger is blocking it. Also, Candy Southern is there. And she lets them know, I know you are mutants. Uh, Jean reads her mind and was like, holy shit, uh, Xavier told her everything. And Candy says, yeah, you know, basically, I mean, she doesn't say this directly, but I blackmailed Xavier into telling me everything. And now I have, like, access to your mansion and I can do whatever I want here. And also, I'm coming with you because I have news for Warren. And the news, as we'll learn in a few issues, is that his mother is marrying his evil uncle. But we'll get to that <laughs> in a future episode. Uh, then we switch again and we see Havoc and Lorna and Kesar, who are still buzzing around the Savage Land and their stupid ship. But now they're looking for Iceman, who's also missing. And uh, they say, it would be just like Bobby to run off half-cocked and get himself in all kinds of trouble. But don't worry, uh, Bobby is with Carl Lycos getting full-cocked, so no one needs to worry about that at all. <laughs> and then Bob I'm glad you played that joke. I was, I was thinking of it. <laughs> Bobby wakes up and is like, haven't we hooked up before? And Lycos is like, I thought you lost your memories. And then he remembers and that. And a shirt. Yeah, there's. I just covered so much very quickly, but that's. Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time here. Uh, anyone have thoughts on the first half of this issue before we go to the latter half? <laughs> I just like Candy Southern inserting herself in. Like, you know what? I know everything, and I am coming with you. So let's go. What did Charles Xavier do to her mind? There is a story waiting to be told. This man did not just let this girl hang out in his house without yeah. something. There's something there. <laughs> And then look what happens to an X Factor years later. Oh, robot brain and just uh, terrible. I have I have huge plans for Candy Southern on my show a little bit yeah. this year. So stay tuned for September, everyone. Uh, Marcus, from a story we- structure point, I, I like my my take. I, I really, I mean, he's telling stories really quickly and doing a lot of scene changes. And you know, if you think of this as an old serial, you or even as a as a modern day soap opera, you don't you, you tell a story and leave it at a at a significant point, but it it feels like there's just too many cuts. It feels like I'm telling too many stories at the same time. There's a lot it, it was it was a lot to ask you even to jump into this random two issues. So <laughs> thank you yeah. for joining us. I mean, <laughs> uh Marcus, will you take the latter half of uh number 10? Tell us what happens. Uh, so we're picking it up after that. Uh, Soran uh, is thinking to himself about his backstory and the fact that he has uh, uh, his his basically his history and the fact that he uh, gave his life rather than letting his the woman he loves come close to him. Um, what he thought was giving his life, but he really didn't die by jumping off that jumping into the into the oblivion. Uh, but rather landing up instead in the savage land. And then within the savage land, he found a small island. And so he sailed away to that island and built his own uh, structure, where is, which is where uh, uh, Bobby found him. Perfect, uh, except it's not his own structure. It's a Nazi hut. There's like dead oh, Nazi right. skeletons inside. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they laid the groundwork for what he had, so he didn't. They didn't have to have a, a reason for it. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have been able to within that period of time. Right, but he left the skeletons in there. <laughs> so yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. That's. I mean, this guy's Sauron is just clearly not all there. And even even when he has his fast uh, faculties about him, he doesn't have his faculties about him. Uh, should I keep going? Yeah, please. Uh, so then we cut to the Beast and Charles Xavier coming up to the house where they uh, are sensing the mutant 
signal and beast is in i love the scene in the bottom of this uh the page where the beast we have the, the three sequences where we see a shadow in the background and then suddenly two eyes light up and we just i mean if you know you know it's a sentinel you see the exact structure of the head and you know that it's a sentinel um that's that's and that's where he picks to cut scenes which is great that is a good cut scene where you're like on a dramatic point and you don't know what's going to happen you want to see what's going to happen but you can't um so then we switch to a, the next scene which is back with uh candy and uh, uh marvel girl where we have the opportunity for candy southern to put on her old costume because that's apparently the only clothes that they have <laughs> there. Jane's, Jane's been wearing her old uh, blue and golds or black and golds for a little bit. So she's like, why don't you put yeah. on my green dress? <laughs> and she, she thinks that that's a good idea, maybe that they can go and and, and hide her identity uh, by putting on the mask and, and the other costume. Uh, and they then come upon a nasty looking freighter uh, where that when they come onto it, they climb onto it uh, from the from the Quinjet, or not something like Quinjet. The uh, Blackbird. The Blackbird, that's right. Um, and uh, then that's where they are surrounded by uh, the grotesque people, the bearded woman, the the man with no legs, the the man with flippers for arms and legs, the, the wolf boy, all of them. And they uh, have no powers and they're easy to overcome because they have no powers and but when they uh when, when uh cyclops and gene and candy uh beat their way past them and find a door where they think uh they find angel and we have a cut scene where we see the wings of of a creature with a stake through them and we see a creature that's been pinned to the wall and we're led to believe that that is angel and then there's another cut scene on the same page that's an example, just to jump out of the story for a second, of a bad cut. I'm like, I would love that to be one page where we see that scene and then turn the page. But instead, we get a lot of cut scenes within the same page, which are disturbing. But um, as they, we cut back to Xavier and the little girl who he recognizes as a mutant, uh, that he's scarcely more than 10 years old. And uh, suddenly, Hank, we cut, we cut back to the scene where you see Hank get, getting thrown out of the house because the Sentinel has come to life and is there to kill him. Um, so Hank fights the Sentinels, puts, takes Beast, puts him out of action, grab Charles, grabs Charles and uh, is about to put him in, him out of action uh, when he identifies the third mutant, Ashley Martin, uh, who he's seen before, but somehow is uh, there to, uh, is, she's familiar with him. And he picks her up and says that he's there to comply with the last orders given of Lawrence Trask, which is destroy all mutants. And we believe that he's about to crush her in his hand. And go back to that story <gasps> arc where the X-Men fly into the sun at the end, if you or the Sentinels, I mean, uh, if you would like to revisit that. I want to cover one line of dialogue very quickly. When Beast and Charles Xavier are walking up to the door, Beast comments, and he's just been to Africa to meet Storm, but he comments on how he's used to meeting mutants in more exotic locales. And Xavier says uh, uh, that uh, there, you know, mutants come from very normal places, just like you did, Beast. Uh, and there's a line of dialogue from Beast that says, in many ways, it is uh, that as much as anything which spurs the unnatural fear of so many humans, hu homo sapiens harbor for mutant kind. Yes, fear of the different. How wrenching to be a pair of normal humans to find themselves parents to what they might deem as a monster. 
which uh, for the queer kid in me, right? Like uh, queer kids born to heterosexual parents. This is something we face. We, we uh, coming from these small town locales, that was an interesting uh, reflection. Uh, we we don't have to spend time on that, but it's uh, it tells you a lot about Beast's mindset sometimes. Uh, issue number 11 is called Destroy All Mutants. We have another split cover, which reflects how John, like crazy these stories are. We've got uh, the Sentinel fighting Beast and holding Ashley Martin. And then uh, Cyclops being held back while we see an image of Avia pinned to the wall. And I want to spend just five seconds on Avia. She is the winged woman from the New Garai race in the Savage Land, who were slave owners. She has acted heroically and has teamed up with the X-Men, but literally does not have a word to speak. She is mute. We know nothing about her motivations, not much about her personality. To see this, like, silent character literally pinned to the wall in this issue is also extraordinarily uncomfortable for me, and it's right on the cover. But it is reminiscent of Angel's time with the Morlocks when he got yeah. picked up by Harpoon. Uh, so uh, there's a there's a quick uh, ed, uh, intro to this. Uh, Michael, will you cover the first half of uh, issue 11 for us? I would love to, Chad. Um, I do want to start with just quickly going to the fake out from the end of the last issue where you see the leg of the person who is a.k.a. potentially crucified with wings. That is not the leg that we see in the cover. It is very clearly supposed to fake us out like a man's leg. I just yeah. want to say that to the, oh, no. And, you know, we all know, like you just mentioned, that Warren has a history of being hung up by his wings several times, at least two when I was a child. So the trauma, the trauma. So getting into issue 11, um, speaking of more trauma and drama, Destroy All Mutants. I mean, the title kind of says it all. So I'll go through with a Reader's Digest version. Those of us at a certain age may know what that means. So we're going back four weeks. Uh, we are seeing where the Sentinel came from. And, well, we've got some drama. We've got Larry, Larry Trask. You know, last name, not coincidental. We know who his father is, Mr. Bolivar. So he's hell-bent on killing all mutants. And he's going to activate the Sentinel to get this job done. And he's wearing this mysterious medallion that I believe he's worn his entire life, Chad. Mm -hmm. I believe. I a very specific since, reason why. <laughs> since, his, since his powers activated in adolescence yes. at the least. That's right. So, you know, he's squabbling and kind of fighting around with this Judge R.C. Chalmers or Chalmers, however you want to pronounce that. And they keep flip-flopping kind of their beliefs here. So, you know, this guy's saying, no, no, you can't do this. And punches him in the face, sorry there, Larry, and grabs his medallion very, you know, very quickly, snatches it. And all of a sudden, you know, Larry's got his senses back. He's like, no, 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 we can't do this. This is wholesale slaughter, even of mutants. You know, so right there, he's flipping. And we have the dun-dun-dun moment of, he's a mutant! He's a precog! Oh, no! So we have so much drama here. And the judge, you know, the judge character is basically confessing, I knew all of this. I know what's going on. I knew what the medallion did. And Larry never seemed to know. So I want to 
keep going a little bit, and then I want to stop to find out what you all think of that. Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll cover that actually very quickly. This, okay. this three-page recap is completely unnecessary. It's from the original 60s run, and it's basically just telling you where the Sentinel came from. But Larry yeah. Trask has no part of this story. There is three pages of oh. flashback here for literally no reason. <laughs> right. It's like, I thought we already knew all this. I'm like, didn't I read this before somewhere sometime? I did, and that's why. So we're going to blow through this. So the Sentinel comes back together. And now we're up to the present with Little Miss Ashley being held by the Sentinel. Um, you know, what what's out of control and actually really fun about this for me is Ashley is very matter of fact. She knows what she's doing and she's telling the Sentinel, no, don't hurt these people. Put me down. Come on. And then very quickly going over to the professor to see if he's OK. And you don't have to worry about this. This is really getting out of hand. <laughs> and this is where we come to a really bad quick quick cut that mark was pointing out in the prior issue we we don't really have any kind of resolution or any kind of cliffhanger next page here we go so we get the revelation that it is in fact avia not warren and you know she can't speak she's unconscious can't really give them any answers and gene here i want to read this because this hits me in a few ways she's helping to levitate her down Yes, she weighs next, you know, she weighs next to nothing. She's well within my limitations of my telekinesis. Gene, why are you saying that? You're you're you know, you're down on yourself. You're like, I'm yeah, I'm I'm not very powerful, people. That's what I'm gonna tell you. So Scott, as he typically does, is gonna blast his way into the next room where we see Kruger and his clan. Maybe I'll say that Kruger and his clan. Um yeah. Like can, what, I just, can I just comment on something one second? Yeah. That, that, that if you ever run across somebody and they have a big piece of wood sticking out of their body, probably <laughs> not the best idea to yank it out. No. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I don't understand how she was disabled by being held up by those stakes and yet yeah. okay to have them yanked out. Right, right. And what is she balancing on that? But yeah, she's yeah. like she's just resting. Ow. And she doesn't make I know she can't speak, but is there like a breath sound? Anything else that could happen? Nope. And she's unconscious. So yank her down. Here we go. That is a really good point, Mark. So we find out, again, very quickly as the series goes, about Kruger's powers. As Chad had mentioned earlier, that, yeah, powers don't really work on him. And he can then use those later if he wants to. So that's kind of where we're at here. And we, and we get a little better picture of what some of his people look like. That are surrounding him and you know he's a very scary guy the way he's putting his hand up almost like a is what we're left with here and then we get and i, I want to read one line of dialogue yes please he sit. says like he's he's surrounded by these these uh people he says like yeah. your own professor x i have gathered about me a band of nature's <sighs> mistakes though we do not hide our afflictions behind polite terms of science as you do we have no need for words like mutant we are quite content to call ourselves freaks Ugh. okay that's all we need to say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right Gross. oh we get back and then we get back to the 90th story story of these two issues with um we get to amphibious finding magneto he's who's finding finding out that he seems mostly recovered from prior issues of losing his powers and this is quite the suit that he's wearing, I must say, with the yellow and all these belts and gear strapped on. <laughs> I see a thumbs down on that one, Jeff. <laughs> and we're back. Wow, that was really only one page. And we're back already to Ashley and the Professor, the Sentinel, and Hank. 
bank is attacking it per usual and he's getting you know he's getting hit on hit by the sentinel ashley of course is stopping this as she does with a big smile on her face now she's all smiles and you know her mom's home oh wait the house has been destroyed oops <laughs> sorry mom <laughs> sorry my toy my pet and- oh i've lived that oh my gosh <laughs> right I mean, we always blow up the house we always get it destroyed why not not just a knickknack the entire house so i'll stop right there because what do you all think about ashley i have strong opinions i kind of love her but what do you all think about ashley i like does ashley. she know i think she's a cute new character i mean she's a little girl she's she names yeah. her sentinel big bot which is yeah. cute she's got little Very toys cute. she's kind of bossy she's throwing a little fit yeah. i, I kind of yeah, like she's, her she's 11 right yeah she's she's i think she's acting closer to seven or eight <laughs> like i like 11 year olds are they're I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, like the labeling roads I've met are, 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 I don't know. Maybe they're just traumatized. They're able to deal with a lot more, um, mm-hmm. and and not like necessarily think that it's nothing. Like actually know what it is. Like deal with parents' divorces and and know what divorce is. Like at age at age seven and at age eleven, they ter- certainly know what it is. And yet she she doesn't doesn't understand that this thing you need to stop it you just destroyed my house like I'm mad at you naughty naughty like that's a that's that's younger behavior in my yeah, she she's not very analytical I would say she is yeah, she's the cousin gross. Oliver of the hidden years <laughs> <laughs> and can I just say something else uh, like about yeah. what I perceived as a missing oppor- missed opportunity with the um with the clan uh and that's that. You know, this guy stops Scott's power, dissipates them, basically says that whatever is freakish about you, i.e. your mutant powers, i.e. whatever is unique and special about you, I negate, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it would have been so much better if the people who surrounded him were just all beautiful. Mm. Like, like he's making them something else. Um by through the through the through his power and if if the if the thing that makes him special is you know scott's uh eye beam and the things that then the thing that makes the 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 man the bearded lady special is her beard and so the beard should disappear while he's around like i, I just think that was a missed opportunity mm. you know, they they all turn on him. yeah yeah i mean the idea that 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 he calls them names and says, what does he say? The uh, we don't hide our afflictions behind terms of science as you do. Like he's perceiving them as afflictions and not uh, unique abilities or things that they can do or that they have that no one else has. And that's the, the core idea of mutants: is that everybody else perceives it as freakish. They perceive it as their their uniqueness, their specials, their their. Their thing that makes them stand out, and Kruger, they like not to stand out. Kruger's that real old guy that stands on the side of the old gay bars and just watches. Just stay away, stay far, far away. Yeah. <laughs> He's jealous. Yeah, uh, Daryl, take us through the last half of uh, number eleven. All right, so um, Marvel Girl Candy and Cyclops confront Kruger. And he basically is like, you know what? I know that you're looking for Angel, but just to suffice to say, he's he's fine. Don't worry about it. And um, he talks to Candy as if she is Marvel Girl, which is fun. 
And Jean goes into her mind and she's like, just go along with it. This might work to our advantage. And, and Candy calls um, him ugly. <laughs> yeah, she's not wrong. Um, and he then shows that he is a mutant power and just sort of drops them to the floor. A conversation over. Um, he doesn't need a good exit strategy for a party because he can just make everyone pass out and then he can leave. Um, and then he goes to the radio station on his derelict ship um, to uh, talk to someone. There's a call coming in on the ship to shore radio. And it turns out it's the blob, um, Jason Wingard, right? Uh, the blob is Fred Dukes. Uh, Mastermind is yeah. Jason Wingard and Eunice the Untouched. Yeah, so Mastermind yeah. is there. Then we have Eunice or Eunice, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it, with his wonderful cummerbund. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, we'll pay money for the, these mutants that you have, too. So we sort of know that Angel has been bought um, by this group of villains. Now, now continuity-wise, these three, Burn is inserting them in between. They were previously in Factor 3 together, and then they were captured by the Sentinels together. The next time they appear is, uh, we'll cover this on my show later this year, is when they these three are the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and they fight the Beast in Amazing Adventures. So this is segued into those two eras. Uh, go ahead, Daryl. Oh, and that's it for that scene. Uh, mystery solved. We go back to... Illinois and see that, that you know it it's almost the wrap-up scene where they're like okay uh, how this sentinel come to be and um we have Ashley say big bot tell us why you came here and he recounts a story how he put himself together and flew around and he was gonna kill Ashley because she's manifesting her powers but he didn't have the power so um she put him in the barn and her mom is like, oh, well, what are we going to do? Ashley's a mutant. We can't have something that wants to destroy all mutants. And the Sentinel's like, oh, you spoke, my lady. I guess I'll kill all mutants. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, we're actually here for uh, um, uh, quite a bit of pages where the Sentinel's attacking, and we figure out that Ashley can control the Sentinel somehow because. Um, she, she's trying, none of her keywords are working. She tries to, um, get around logically with her 11 year old logic. That's not quite working out. And, um, she then tells him off and destroys him with the power of anti-friendship. And, <laughs> and she's like, nobody should be friends with you. Um, not even the robots that you're made out of. You shouldn't be friendly to one another. And he self-combusts, basically, um, because he's like, you're right, Ashley, and explodes. Um, and we see that she has creepy red eyes. It's a real nice thriller reveal at the end of this, where um, we just see the eyes and we're like, she's maybe a werewolf, maybe a zombie, but... Her mutant power is definitely manifesting itself in some red eyes. And that's it. We don't get any conclusion because she's like, stop whining at me before I get really mad. Shades of the Hulk TV show. And we're ending this issue back in the Savage Land where Bobby is stumbling through the woods and he's like, why do I feel so helpless? Um, I should be able to do more to fight back. 
And he's like, there's Joe Smith, which is really Carl Weigel's. And he's like, I should help him. And um, Carl is like, Drake, stay away from me. Um, my energy reserves have sunk too low. I'm, I'm going to suck them off of you. And Bobby in his underwear is like, no. And then not again. Uh, <laughs> and then and then Sauron is like, just kidding, JK, stick around because I'm a dinosaur again. And I am going to start with you. And uh, you know, we back, fam. And it's gonna be a bad scene, except for me, because I'm happy. I'm a pterodactyl in pants. <laughs> and that's the end of the issue. I do love me myself. Um, love me some Sauron. This uh, this plot line, these three plot lines carry into like the next four issues. Uh, but oh. next issue in number twelve, we really get to heat up with a Sauron Magneto battle. But yeah, the Ashley Martin and the Kruger and the Blob Eunice uh, mastermind story go on for a little while. So, like listeners, stay tuned. If you're reading along, you can enjoy along with us. Uh, we're going to wrap up kind of quickly because we're at time, but I would love to hear from each of you what it was like for you to revisit uh, X-Men The Hidden Years after all of these years. Maybe this was your first time. Uh, what, so if we uh, if we could hear from each of you briefly and then we'll do our outros. Uh, what was it like to revisit this series? I felt really nostalgic myself. I felt like it was really you know, fun to see a lot of those, a lot of the storylines, a lot of, you know, that, that made sense to be in, to be sandwiched in between, you know, stuff that could possibly have happened in between the other stories that we do know about already, um, without having to, you know, ever show up in continuity again. Um, I, I'm, okay. I, I'm okay. If Kruger never shows up again, that's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always feel I, like John Byrne has such amazing ideas. He has really great ideas. He benefits so much from a good editor, Absolutely. from someone that can help shape the ideas. And because I remember reading a lot of his stories and thinking, that's so cool. Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh, that's what happens? Okay. That wasn't what I wanted to happen. That was... <laughs> but that's uh, I, me. Interesting. I, I feel like, so I had not read these issues. I had only read random issues of the series uh, many, many years ago. And so what I'm blown away by is... Well, first of all, John Byrne, the art, everyone's facial expressions and every panel everywhere are completely over the top expression-wise, which I kind of love. I'm not going to say I don't love that at the same time. And it, and it does match. The, the, the art does really match all of the insanity happening from panel to panel, from page to page. And I do appreciate that. Um, you know, what is sticking with me as we really honed in on today, the ridiculousness of so many stories and so many quick cuts, sometimes on the same page, which happened to Mark when he was <laughs> going over his section, um, which, which pulls me out of the stories a little bit. And it just cuts so much logic when you're cutting the stories so quickly like that. Like, what would have happened if these were like one issue per entire story with a little subplot tied on somewhere like one page? I think these would flow much better that way. Hmm. Yeah. Or would they be more ridiculous? Because we would catch all these silly things happening together. I don't know. That's what this makes me think about. Uh, I, I'm getting the the vibe that Ashley Martin was the narrator of this whole thing. It's her and her toys. And she's like, oh, we're in the savage land flying around. And then she throws them down and picks up some more. And like, oh, no, I'm hung up on a wall. And then oh, she fake. Oh, I'm not real. Tosses it back I, down. Like, she's just going through the whole toy box. Yeah, Good theory. <laughs> I think uh, the series was made for the TikTok generation. Um, all that's <laughs> missing is like a 15-minute bread recipe thrown in there. Um, 
But if it, maybe the current generation wants some exposure to old school X-Men, start here and then go into the 60s issue. See if it's for you. <laughs> uh, oh, this has been a genuine delight. Marcus, first of all, to hear your stories. Uh, and then Michael and Daryl and, and all of us just being able to nerd out together for a little while. This is my yeah. favorite thing. I get to close the door and just have fun. I had a great time today. We're going to put this episode out on July 3rd. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And uh, do you have anything you would like to plug? And as you're doing your outros, I know we're over time. If anyone needs to, to leave immediately after, that's completely fine. Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Michael, Daryl, and then Marcus. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Chad. This has been so much fun. It's the first time I've been here, so it's been very exciting. And I hope I'm invited back for many, you, many more over the years. <laughs> Yay! Thank you. I knew who I was, but I wanted to say that for dramatic effect. So my <laughs> outro, which I've never heard about in my entire life, is that you can find me, um, I guess, at Age of Dazzler on Facebook. Also, I bring this around to cons when they don't laugh, but... The cons I do make it to, we always I always set up an Age of Dazzler happy hour to get people together in real life, and usually on a Sunday after all the panels, so we can just chill out. And there typically happens to be the surprise, which I'm ruining right now, of a trivia with prizes. So you can find me that way. And also just on Facebook, Michael Anderson, which you'll never find me because it's private, and it's a generic name. Thanks, <laughs> Mom and Dad. And that's my outro. Thank my you. My husband's name is literally Michael Anderson. <laughs> See, it happens. But you did that. You caused that. Uh, and then Daryl. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at X Factor Files Podcast. My partner Philip and I are um, embarking on a new season where we are reviewing each and every 1993 Marvel annual, which introduced a brand new character with each issue. Um, so it's a good cross-section. We are taking a slight break with this season of the show to um, do that. And then we will get back to Peter David's X-Factor investigations after that um, and finish out that series. So really exciting. And um, the one I teased earlier, the episode I teased, is um, Barbie Marvel Comics. We are having Barbara Slate, who wrote um, uh, Barbie Fashion, and also the uh, penciler Anna Maria Cool join us for that episode to talk about the creative process, especially with a licensed property such as Barbie. So um, really excited for that and all of our other episodes, which are going to take us to the end of the year because there are a lot of annuals in 1993 um, and there's a lot of ground to cover. So super excited. Find me on Instagram and tune in. I am super excited to be part of that project as well. So we're going to have a good time. Uh, and then, uh, and then lastly, Marcus. Um, I would just piggyback one quick thing about Peter David, because I worked on the last Avenger story. I, I was the editor, the final editor on Marvel, uh, the last Avenger story, which took a story which took five years to bring to life from when it was actually written to when it was actually published. Um, and that's a that's a story in of itself. Uh, but uh, you can find me at ideamechanics.com. Uh, you can find me at uh, idea at idea mechanics on Instagram and uh, on idea at idea mechanics on Facebook. Although I've been, not been active at all a lot lately, but that's uh, where you find. 
again to all three of you just thank you this was a genuine delight today i uh, i love assembling this show and just seeing all the things that come together this is uh this has been a joy uh lastly i keep keep my own social media private because i've got kiddos but the three of you are welcome to add me you can find me however on gray malkin pp like podcast on twitter gray malkin underscore land on instagram the episode coming out immediately after this will go right into the next hidden years issue x-men hidden years number 12 which is a double size featuring a uh, sauron versus magneto uh the uh guests coming in on that one are uh, marcus on also a friend of the show, as well as Jason Muir, who are the creative team behind the incredible series, modern series, uh, By the Horns. Uh, we're going to have a genuinely good time. I know them both, and we're going to have so much fun. Uh, my next Patreon-focused episode coming out after this will be on the little-remembered Kazar villain, Ramona Starr, uh, with my friend Steve Duda. And you get to hear me, uh, during a live recording, learn a powerful life lesson. So make sure you tune in. Uh, <laughs> I am humbly, happily <laughs> sharing this with all of you. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you for the panel, especially today. And we will see you back here next time on Greymalk and Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.